Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to our Bloomberg television and radio audiences. I'm sitting here with an exclusive interview in Washington, D.C. at Carlisle's headquarters with the CEO of Carlisle, Harvey Schwartz, in his first interview since joining a year ago as CEO. Harvey, today you announced a number of strategic updates to investors. Your stock is up the most it's been since 2022. What is the biggest change that investors need to know about the future of Carlisle today? So, uh, great to see you, Shanali. Um, I think the movement in the stock, which you point out, is much more about seeing the momentum in the franchise. So coming into the fourth quarter, the team really came together. And whether it was record FRE, fundraising, the momentum coming into 2024. And then, of course, uh, on the call, we outlined some strategic initiatives and, for the first time, financial targets for, for 2024, which, you know, have very significant upward trajectory. We'll talk about those uh, initiatives, but we can also say you passed your first year on the job. The grace period is over. Uh, what's the That's biggest... my anniversary yesterday. Yeah, and what is now... You're looking into year two, and a lot of people think of this as a make-or-break year. What is the biggest challenge for you as you enter this year? So, 2020 as a new CEO coming in, it really was about investing time with my teams and spending time with our investing clients around the world. I think I met with over 300 LPs in the first year that I was here. And with respect to my teams, it was really about me getting to know them, but more importantly, them getting to know me. 2024 is really about focus on our priorities excellence of execution and more teamwork. If we do those three things, we'll exceed our targets for this year. Part of the changes that you made, these uh, financial initiatives as well as some strategic updates you've made, means you're going to change the way you pay your deal makers. You've also announced a $1.4 billion buyback plan. How does this change incentives for the people who work at Carlisle and the people who invest in Carlisle? So when I showed up here, one of the first things the senior investor said is we would like even more alignment with our investors. So this is about, with our investing clients, this is really about alignment across our stakeholders. So it's our senior investors, our investing clients, and our shareholders. And it, as I said earlier, it really is a win-win-win because our investing clients get more alignment with our investors, our investors get even more pay for performance, and our shareholders get an increased steady stream of fee-related earnings. Most investors would recognize it's a tough job. Carlisle's founders, including David Rubenstein, who is a contributor to Bloomberg TV as well, has been famously involved in the succession plan at Carlisle, and they remain large shareholders of the firm. How involved are they in the day-to-day -day operations? So when I met with the founders before I took this role, I was very clear with them that I wanted them very involved in the business. Um, Carlisle is an iconic brand. They, they create an amazing culture here. Getting to know this company over the past year has been an extraordinary privilege for me, but having really their history, their connectivity with clients, their investing experience, um, as much we'll take as much as we can get at Carlisle. So 
record fee related earnings, as you have said, but even in the last year, there was a 36% rise in Carlisle stock. Last year, rivals, Blackstone, Aries were 70% or more. How do you keep up? How do you get Carlisle stock price to start to match your rivals? So I think about the stock price really as an output. It is about, again, what I said, focus on priorities, deliver performance. If we do all those things, the stock price is going to follow. How do you think about some of these areas that have been very hot-button issues across Wall Street? Take private credit, for example. On one hand, it is a big place for Carlisle to be bringing in new money. You've shown that in the fourth quarter. On the other hand, there are a lot of questions about the industry at large, that a lot of money is flowing in, and whether there's enough opportunities to put that money toward. How do you address those concerns? So I think there's really two questions that have come up around credit. Uh, one of them, I think, really relates to systemic risk. And I think a lot of those discussions are sort of misunderstood. If you think about what we do as capital providers and how we provide that capital, and then you have a discussion around systemic risk, it really doesn't have the three core characteristics. We don't have leverage. We don't use significant leverage. There's not concentration risk. And there's not interconnectivity in what we do. So I think the systemic risk discussion that's a bit overblown. Uh, and things, in terms of deploying credit, it's our responsibility, first and foremost, to our investing clients to deploy that credit in the most thoughtful way possible. And that's what having 20 plus years experience in the credit business. There is a risk of a bubble. I think whenever you see a lot of capital moving into a space, you have to worry about at the margin, how that distorts the opportunity set, but that's where the investing teams really have to do their best work. They have to pick their credits, they have to deploy that capital, and they have to perform. You know, we're sitting here on a week, too, where you're seeing fears about regional banking come up once again in the market. You're seeing the issues over at New York Community Bank and the, uh, the downgrades that it's been facing. When you think about the role of private capital, where Carlisle fits into the story, how much can private capital really start to jump in to the problems of the regional banking system? So I think as capital providers, whether it's in our private equity platform, credit, our solutions business, I think this capital can be incredibly valuable and has proven to be valuable in terms of solving economic problems. And so I think when you think about banking crisis or a banking disruption, the best way to address that is with the most efficient cost of capital. And if Carlisle can be a provider of that capital, I think we should put that capital to work on behalf of our clients. Well, some of the areas, too, are kind of choppier. Let's say commercial real estate, for example. There are a lot of fears that the commercial real estate sector could really be facing a significant crisis, particularly in the New York area. Do you share those concerns? So one of the very fortunate things that I inherited when I showed up at Carlisle is one of the best real estate investing teams in the world. Um, their performance over 20 years is truly extraordinary. Um, when I talked to them about commercial real estate, they really started backing away from office many, many years ago. We don't see it as a sector where yet we, we see real opportunity. So I think there's going to be challenges, but I think this plays out over many, many years, because in some respects, we can see this problem. Um, but it's a problem that will have to be digested by the markets over a number of years. Yeah, let's get a little macro here, because part of this problem is being caused on the heels of higher interest rates. And you have a market now that still expects more than five rate cuts before the January FOMC meeting of next year. Do you believe that those five rate cuts will come to fruition? 
So we have a pretty unique perspective on this because across our portfolio companies, we have in excess of a million employees and we see the data and the performance. I would say that if you step back and you think about historic Fed behavior, the Fed typically either is fine-tuning or cutting dramatically or raising dramatically. And when we look at the data from our portfolio companies and then you look at strong GDP, unemployment numbers that are quite attractive, when you see inflation has really stopped materially and paused at this stage, I don't think we should be rooting for five or eight rate cuts. I think that would suggest an environment that actually requires a lot of attention from the Fed. I think we should be hoping for fine-tuning, because I think the economy is in better shape than people are giving credit for, and I think the Fed's done a fantastic job navigating this. So what is a more realistic view of where rates go? In our model, we would expect the base case to be two or three cuts. The Fed, we expect to be very data sensitive. We're watching this closely also. But again, my crystal ball uh, may be as good as yours. So we'll see what happens. Well, Markets are hard to predict. What's the risk then that we tip over from a soft landing or even no landing into a recession? What would cause the tides to turn? I think you could see if you had an unexpected market disruption, geopolitical event. Um, but remember, the Fed has communicated to us that they're watching this data very carefully. And so hoping for multiple rate cuts, I think is a little bit of a recency bias. I think it's people really saying, oh, I really enjoyed that QE that we we're experiencing. I think as market participants, we should want a normalized cost of capital. And if we can get there through this process, I think it'd be an extraordinary outcome. And I, and I think it'd actually be, I think it'd be great for business opportunities. I think it'd be really good for Carlisle. And I think it'd be great for our investing clients. I think we'd create a lot of alpha. I'm curious about your view of the world. We're sitting here in Washington, D.C. today. I have a few D.C. questions for you. Before we get there, you do have a large presence internationally as well, particularly when it comes to China, at a time where there are a lot of questions about the world's second largest economy, the strength of the economy there, and its relationship with Washington, D.C. and the United States. How do you view those challenges and how do you navigate them as an investor? So we represent investors all over the world. They have different requirements. Some of those will look at China and they'll say, you know, the risk profile doesn't look, doesn't look like it fits our characters. Many of my clients around the world, in touring the world last year, they really liked the risk reward in China. And you know, you bring up China, uh, it got a lot of attention because we uh, sold our position in McDonald's. Um, I'm sure you saw it. This was a tremendous return um, over a number of years. And the one thing I'll say about that, because it really highlights the power of our private equity franchise, you know, people ask me this question all the time, well, on higher rates, what does that mean for business? When you actually look at that transaction, it was a near seven times return for our investors in China, uh, just exited right in this environment, and roughly 80% of the value creation came just from operational enhancements. So it's really what we do. It's about picking the right partner, being in China made sense, and actually executing the business. So I think there's, there's opportunities. What about the opportunities here at home? There have been a large, large U.S. investors, a lot of big names sounding alarms about what's happening here, not about the economy, but about the sustainability of what we're spending as a country, the debt load and the deficit. How do you view that from where you're sitting? And do you think it could spiral into a bigger problem? So I think these are all legitimate concerns. We tend to lament a lot of things in the United States. I, I think uh, I'll tell you, when I traveled around the world last year in a number of geographies, uh, I was told by our investing clients they felt a bit overallocated to the United States, and they actually said they're going to keep allocating more to the United States. I, I wouldn't bet against the United States. Well, what about that 
concern embedded with the dysfunction you're seeing in Congress alone. How do you see kind of this gridlock impacting investors throughout the year? So, you know, we're in an election year, and I was just talking to uh, one of our uh, chief economists, uh, Jason Thomas, we were having a discussion about this uh, just last week. And I think the S&P 500 has gone through 23 election cycles. In 23 election cycles, roughly 80 plus percent of the time, Democrat, Republican, uh, the S&P 500 has gone up. Um, I'd like to see us get through an election cycle, and I'd like to see everyone in Washington really start to come together, because we do have complex problems, and, and coming together is the way we're going to solve them. Well, with a constant threat here of government shutdowns, for example, do you think that the road ahead this year could be bumpy, uh, particularly as we head through the to the election? If it's been like the ones I just mentioned for the 23 elections since the S&P 500, I think it's going to be good for markets. Um, I don't think it's great when our when our politicians play ping pong with things like the debt ceiling and everything else. I think we should just you know focus on the business of the government. But I'm not a politician. The election itself. Obviously, this is a very unique election with two leading contenders having served in office recently. How do you see this really playing out? Both candidates, both leading candidates in the Democratic and Republican Party have low approval ratings. How do you think about this dynamic in the C-suite and the risks that it poses into 2025? So, Carla, we've been doing this for a very, very long time. We've been through complicated elections. We've been through surprise elections. I think we, we'll get through this election, and as I said, we'll focus on the business and the priorities of the day. Priorities of today. We kind of started this conversation talking about Carlisle, the future of Carlisle. By the time you're done leading Carlisle, what ways will you have transformed the firm? Well. I'm not thinking about being done. I think we're just getting started. I couldn't be prouder of my team this year, the way they really came together. You saw it in all the growth, and you see it in the momentum coming into this year. Again, this is really, as I said, if we focus on our investing clients, we focus on performance, Carlisle will continue to grow, and we will be an incredibly important capital provider to people benefiting from that capital. With all of these changes, it begs the question, too, you know, private credit, wealth channels, what's the future of traditional private equity? Especially under a higher interest rate regime, as you've so, mentioned. So, you know, you and I have chatted about this before. I don't generally make any sort of long-dated predictions. I think the role of private equity and private capital will only grow uh, over the next several years. The, the number of companies that will want to stay private, the wealth accumulation in the world, the actual wealth that will move into this sector, often referred to as the democratization uh, of the asset class, the tailwinds in the industry, and one of the great appeals for me actually coming in and, and thinking about can I really have the impact I want to have at Carlisle is about the trajectory of this industry. I think it's early days for private capital managers, and I think we're all on a pretty steady growth path. You know, last word here. It's interesting. You're talking about these share buybacks. You're talking about also the changes you're making at the firm. Uh, analyst on the call earlier was almost asking, are you giving back too much money? How are you going to keep investing back into the firm? How are you going to keep investing back into the firm? So in terms of how we think about capital allocation, today was all about defining the flexibility, acknowledging first and foremost that we think the enterprise value isn't represented. And so if we think that is the best marginal deployment of capital, we'll put it back to the shareholder. We're not going to sacrifice growth opportunities. And I don't want to make it too technical, but it really just is about the efficient frontier and efficiently allocating that capital. If we think the best opportunity is in growth, where we see enormous opportunity, we'll do it. If we think the capital flexibility provides us the opportunity to return to the shareholders, we'll do it. But the balance sheet is strong, and we can do both things. 
Harvey, thank you so much for your time. That is Harvey Thanks. Schwartz, the CEO of Carlisle, just off of his first year on the job for Bloomberg Television and radio audiences. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.